Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And we are talking now in the time of coronavirus. So that's obviously the topic that's going to be on the table in this conversation. And I want to point out that this is not a debate as we usually present it, but it's more of a conversation on our Discourse Disruptor series. And that's where we talk with people who are very concerned with and studying the state of our discourse around various topics and issues. How good are we at talking about the things that we need to talk about? And obviously, we're living through it now, the coronavirus pandemic, and it's sweeping the globe and is prompting all kinds of conversations, some of it difficult, a lot of it faulty, um, which has, I'm sure you're guessing, is the reason we're having this conversation. The World Health Organization is warning about what it's calling an information epidemic. Some people are calling it an infodemic. So in this episode of Intelligence Squared US, we will be discussing this whole issue, this idea with two people who are experts in the study of information. Angie Drobnik-Holon, who is the editor-in-chief of PolitiFact, and Kate Starberg, a computer scientist and associate professor at the University of Washington. All three of us are speaking to you from home through the miracle of technology. We are able to connect this way. I want to remind you that you can listen to all of our Discourse Disruptor series by visiting us online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. So let's get to it. Angie and Kate, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Intelligence Squared US. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for having us. Angie, let's start with you. You're the editor-in-chief of PolitiFact. That very name tells us a lot, but tell us a little bit more about what PolitiFact is. What is it there for? What does it do? We are a news organization that focuses exclusively on fact-checking. So during normal times, we are doing a variety of fact-checking activities. We're listening to what politicians say, especially their campaigning during election time. Uh, we're looking at misinformation on social media, and we're fact-checking that. Um, we have a particular partnership with Facebook to fact-check on their platform. And we're just listening to what any kind of advocates or public figures have to say, and if it's the kind of thing that would make someone say, hmm, I wonder if that's true, then PolitiFact is likely to fact-check it. These days, we've been almost entirely focused on fact-checking uh, discussion and claims about the coronavirus. So this is a almost a sort of new era in that sense for PolitiFact. It's a new chapter, let's put it that way. It is a new chapter. Now, we've seen hints of what we're in now before. During 2014, PolitiFact devoted substantial um, fact-checking hours to claims about Ebola. And in fact, lies about the Ebola virus won our not-so-coveted Lie of the Year award. <laughs> and we've also been um, fact-checking President Donald Trump uh, intensively since he took office. So now we have a pandemic that we've never seen before, and we have um, President Trump and daily press briefings, and there's just a ton out there to fact-check. Well, we're going to get to a lot of that. I want to learn a little bit more now about you, Kate. As I mentioned, you're at the University of Washington, which puts you in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Seattle is one of the epicenters, really the very close to the first um, site of a warning of a, the virus having an impact in the United States. Tell us what you do and tell us 
about the relevance of being there where you are right now. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it's, it is an interesting time to be in Seattle, for sure. And we were um, early with the, with the pandemic, with experiencing the coronavirus here, but we also took a lot of early actions. And so uh, Seattle is no longer the epicenter. It's actually, um, things are calming down here, but it's a very eerie calm. Um, hmm. And we're still kind of trying to figure out what it is that's, that's going to happen for the next few months here as well. Uh, so a little bit about me. My research is, um, well, for about a, a decade, I've been doing research on the use of social media during crisis events. Um, my initial field was called crisis informatics. It was actually, a, it, it, it's an emerging field um, out of uh, the University of Colorado, which is where I was doing my PhD. Um, and my dissertation was basically on all the pro-social things that people do after disaster events, uh, how they use social media to come together and help each other. And uh, around 2013, my research shifted a little bit with a new grant to look at the spread of rumors and misinformation during crisis events. Uh, and then more rec recently, I've been looking at the spread of intentional misinformation or disinformation around crisis events and more generally. So in some ways, I've been in this space for, for more than a decade of, of looking at social media content um, at, during, during crises. But certainly this crisis is something that's, that's a lot bigger than anything we had studied before, both in just the, the, the number of people that are affected and the length of the, of the, of the crisis, which is something that really is, is different in, in meaningful ways um, for us as researchers and as for the people experiencing it. So it's interesting from what you're seeing, in the early part of your work at the University of Colorado, you were looking at how what we today call social media, I'm not sure what it was called when you were starting out how far back you're going, but that it was actually a good thing in a crisis. It was serving a very positive purpose. So I would say my advisor, I got off the phone with this morning. We were kind of reliving some of that early research. They, Her early work said, this is a thing. This is a thing that's going to happen. People are going to use social media during crisis events, and this is going to change how we respond to crisis in all these different ways. My research actually focused on digital volunteerism, so how people converged on social media to help themselves, to help their neighbors, and to help people halfway across the world in some cases. So um, in some ways, I was studying what was happening in the worst of times, but I was studying the best of human behavior. <laughs> and that research agenda just sort of shifted over time as sort of the worst of human behavior became more salient in some of the things that, that we were looking at. You mean it took time for the worst of us to catch up with the best of us? <laughs> yeah, in some ways. It, yeah, the, the, the initial beauty of the online environment got replaced by the people that wanted to exploit it. Although people that exploit crisis events, that the exploiter role has always been a part of crisis events long before there were social media yeah. to enable it. Angie, I started the conversation by using this term information epidemic, which I first heard coming from the World Health Organization, and it's been shortened, shorthanded to infodemic. Is that a real thing? And are we having one right now? It certainly seems like it. We've been seeing more misinformation uh, spread in more different ways than we've ever seen. We started fact-checking in 2007. Now, just to take people back in time, um, Twitter and Facebook were hardly a thing in the 2008 election. They just started spreading to a few um, select audiences. Um, then, uh, 2012, we saw more of uh, 
Twitter and Facebook was starting to get in on news. 2016, things really progress. And now the tools are so powerful and misinformation spreads so rapidly um, that it does feel like an infodemic. Although one of the frustrations we have is that it's really hard to find an objective measure of misinformation. So so some of these uh, um, summaries that we give, they, they're subjective, but I mean, we're doing more fact-checking. What do you mean that they're subjective? I find that really interesting that it's hard to pin down what's misinformation and what's not. What I'm saying is there's not a good way to measure like how many false posts were put on Facebook last uh-huh. year or how many false posts were put on Twitter last year and how many of those posts were corrected. Uh, I'm not aware of any, uh, you know, decent metrics that would look at that. So we end up with the subjective feeling of, boy, it seems like there's more false messaging than ever. But as far as putting a number or a quantity on it, that's really challenging. What about qualitatively, though? Is it clear what's false and what's not false? I think if we're looking at one particular piece of information, and and this is kind of where PolitiFact makes its bread and butter, we can, we can examine one factual claim and say, um, there's nothing to this. Um, this, the study they cite doesn't really exist, the researchers that they say authored the study don't exist, therefore the information is false. We can do that, mm-hmm. um, but trying to get a, uh, an environmental view, so to speak, is, is still challenging. Okay. One of the things about crisis events specifically, so to switch this uh, very specifically into the coronavirus, is that the thing we know about crisis events is the best and most accurate information is often changing during a crisis event. And this crisis event is no different than hmm. um, we, we've got a condition where the, the actual science is still in, in motion and there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And the things, the best information five days ago may not be the best information today, and in a week it may change again. And so, in crisis events, there's this tendency to try to like there's, there's experience of uncertainty, and there's this tendency to try to resolve that uncertainty. And so, rumoring and misinformation is actually sort of a natural part of the crisis, of the human response to crisis events. And and one of the things about rumoring is that sometimes rumors turn out to be true. And sometimes rumors turn out to be false. Mm-hmm. And so there is this space. I mean, there are these like clearly factually incorrect claims that are being made. But there's also claims that were made a few weeks ago that we can now look back and say, hey, those were wrong. That may not have been someone lying to us. Someone w- could have been interpreting it I- incorrectly or the science could have just changed. Um, and so can you think of an example of that um, example of that? Uh, the R0 values uh, uh-huh. that were initially listed at 3.8 and then they're 2.4 and they can they move up and down. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty in those R0 values. And as people spread the R0 values with different kinds of framing, they actually cause a lot of early anxiety. Perhaps that was anxiety that was useful, um, but they've changed over time. And so when we look back and see what people might have said a few weeks ago, that actually it, it may not be the best information anymore. So there's this difference between lying and there's a difference between sort of rumoring in the crisis event where it's just we're trying to figure things out and we haven't gotten it right yet. And both things are happening. There are people exploiting information for political reasons and there are people that are just getting it wrong when they're trying to figure out what's, what, what's going on.
I'm John Donvan. We'll be right back with more on the topic of infodemics in this special episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Now, back to our guests, scholar Kate Starbird and journalist Angie Drobnik-Holan, on the current coronavirus infodemic. I want to move the conversation forward to this. Angie, let's talk a little bit more about the specific situation of coronavirus and the stuff that's out there that PolitiFact is having to correct. Is that the correct term for it? Correct? Is that the word that you use at PolitiFact? Yes, okay, that's, all right. that's okay. one of the words. We sure. use several. Okay. Um, but what are some of the the leading contenders for wrong wrong information? I'll try to use as neutral a term as possible. <laughs> in, in the past couple of days, we've seen a lot of information around phony cures. So, and some of it is uh, not harmful, such as one post we said said, gargling with salt water will cure you of the coronavirus. Well, it might make your throat feel better, but it's not going to cure you. Um, but then another claim we checked just a few days before that was that drinking bleach would cure the coronavirus. Wow. Clearly wrong and potentially dangerous. Um, so we're seeing a lot of claims around that. And, and I do want to just reiterate what Kate said. The motives of some of these people are difficult to discern. Um, some of them are um, seem to be pranksters. Um, some seem to be just, you know, well-intentioned but misinformed people. Other people have some kind of monetization motive where they're trying to get people to click. And then there's politics. And then finally, I would add the whole idea that um, that other governments are trying to seed misinformation in the United States is a, is another thing. So you have all of these potential motives, and it's really hard to tell who is spreading what and why. Like, why would people want to spread phony cures? I don't know. But I do know that the information is out there, and our fact checks show that they're wrong. But isn't it, I, I think you're alluding to this. Isn't it possible that there are people out there who, with all the best intentions, are sharing things with a megaphone that they would not have had 10, 15 years ago, namely social media. Um, and they're wrong, and they could be causing harm, but the motivations aren't necessarily nefarious. Absolutely. I've gotten messages from my own family via WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger that includes wrong things, and I don't think they have, have anything but goodwill for me. So it, the misinformation can come from anywhere. Yeah, they're, they're altruistic motives. Like people, they have this information. They think that, that maybe someone that they know could benefit from having it. And they pass it along because they think that they're helping. And oftentimes they're not quite sure about the information, but they make this calculation that says, if I, if I don't spread it and it turns out to be right, that's going to be worse than if I do spread it and it turns out to be wrong. So a lot of times the people right, passing these that. along yeah. are, are actually trying to help. And I, uh, I, I received a family member called me with one of these things, and then they sent me the email that they'd heard it from, and I was like, I think that's not, that's not true. But, um, but they, were, they were trying to help. Try, they got this information. They wanted to help their family make the right decisions about things. And, and it's, it's, it's often the people generating some of these things maybe aren't altruistic, but a lot of the, the reasons that we pass it along are because we're trying to help other people. Let me bring this down to a very personal level for me. I, I'm no longer in the in the particular game that I used to be in, 
but I was a network correspondent and I covered um, war situations and disaster situations. And my, my job there was to, you know, figure out what was going on. And then this was all overseas. I was a foreign correspondent and then reported back to the audience back here in the United States about what it was. And I found it not easy in those situations because I would be very often, you know, a neophyte in the location and I wouldn't speak the language. And I would turn to people to ask them to tell me what was going on. And there was stuff that just sounded implausible to me, you know, not at all, but I had no other way to check it. And the challenge for me was to not let it get into my head too much. And back in 1989, I was in Romania when that country's system blew up and the people rebelled against the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu and ultimately murdered him, um, executed him in a sort of kangaroo court setting. But I got in there two or three days before that happened alone without any staff and without any Romanian to speak. And I met somebody who began to translate for me. And the middle of the night, I was in a hotel alone. He calls me up and he says... John, you've got to get out of there. I said, why? He said, the Iranians have landed. It was everywhere. People were saying that the Iranians have landed. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, why would the Iranians be sending people, you know, troops or something like that to Bucharest in the middle of this uprising? But he was adamant about it. And he said, I've talked with people who have seen them. They're already shooting. And at that point, I was thinking, do I, I wasn't thinking, do I report this? I was thinking, are the Iranians going to get me? The part of my brain that said this doesn't make any sense prevailed. But there was a part of me in the middle of this thinking, here's a guy on the phone who's speaking to somebody else who's seeing this thing that sounds implausible, but he's seeing it. Should I act on this? Should I believe this? And I'm terribly embarrassed to admit this now because in retrospect of 30 years, of course, it seems completely crazy. But at the time, there was gunfire going on all over Bucharest. There was a lot of civil unrest and people were taking to the streets and shooting each other, shooting members of the regime. So I, I certainly had the backdrop of the sound effect, but I'd be curious, Kate, if you could analyze what I went through for that brief period, that brief period when I was willing to consider an absurd sounding rumor and, and, and its impact on what I should do. Should I run? Should I hide under the bed? Definitely, I wasn't going to report it. I mean, that part was professional. I didn't know this for a fact. But but did I live through something that's kind of typical? Ooh, that's that, that's a hard one. I, I think that's atypical. That's, that seems to be pretty extreme. But I do you know when we're experiencing <laughs> something like like a crisis event, there's a fog of war. What's going on? Who's doing what? There's a lot of anxiety um, about what actions you should take. So you're, you're actually you know where. Mm-hmm. What, what you experienced was acute and, and pretty extreme, but in, in some ways, a lot of us are experiencing very similar things right now in this crisis. Is we've got a lot of information. It's coming at us from different places. We're trying to figure out what to do to protect ourselves, to protect our communities, um, and to still make sure our, our you know we're able to eat. And so there's you know all this is going on, and and yes, something where a friend of yours calls and says you, he heard from somebody else and. You've got these, you know, it's just a friend of a friend. It's, you know, and it's not too far away. This is very right for the for the spread of rumor. And I don't understand why, but we're seeing an, a lot in this event, that friend of a friend. Yeah. I don't understand how that happens because clearly somebody wasn't telling the truth or wasn't interpreting what they were seeing correctly. 
But I think there's also a collapsing where you actually heard it from a friend of heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend, but then you're saying you heard it directly from that friend, right? Which seems to be happening in, yeah. in this case a lot. Um, but there's something that collapses there where where we're believing that personal connection and and it tricks us because of the way the way the, the rumor spreads. It's actually not as close. It's not so few hops. Yeah. Yeah. I have another good example of this, which is present day. I received a text from a friend um, who copied in the text, he copied a, a text that he had received from his friend Pete in Seattle. And it was a message to his daughter from a friend of hers. And the message itself says, I'm sure some of you are asleep, but I want to pass a message along. My dad just called, and he's been contacted by five of his close friends in the military, four of whom have family members in the military. They're meeting tomorrow tomorrow to possibly put military martial law into effect. Fill your gas tank, get your cash out of the ATM. No reason to panic, but better to be prepared. I got this from my friend. I'm in Washington. He's in in Nevada City, California. Within an hour, my daughter gets this yeah. same sort of thing, almost the same content from somebody else. And I'm I'm wondering, Angie, Angie, did this one cross the uh, the politifact threshold? This uh there was it was about 10 days ago. This scare that Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell tell me what you do about it. Oh, it definitely did. Um it it this is one of those uh pieces of misinformation that's basically a conspiracy theory. So to debunk it, you have to say, we searched all the normal venues where if this was a thing, a real thing, you would see it. And there's nothing. Um, The government says it's not true. The military says it's not true. The local authorities say it's not true. There's no evidence of this. So therefore, it's not true. Um, but we did see this message, and and I had several people in my personal life tell me that they had heard the National Guard was coming into the streets the next day, and and then it doesn't happen, and people just kind of forget about it. Um, I want I, one of my theories is that when when we are in a extremely high profile news event, people are just hungry for new information. And sometimes there's not new information to be had. Everything that's verifiable and knowable has been reported widely. And I think that may be a factor that makes people very vulnerable to these poorly sourced social media claims because people, and I find myself doing it, you know, I go to the websites that I trust for news and I hit them over and over again, even when the headlines are staying, mm-hmm. saying exactly the same. So it's like we want to know new information so badly, even when it's not there to be found. Because we think it's going to help us resolve this uncertainty. We think it's going to help us feel better to get, you know, that next piece of information is going to help me feel better somehow. I've described that and just like why we keep watching the feeds because it helped, and it actually makes us more anxiety, you know, more anxious. And, um, but, but we keep, we keep doing it because it's, it's, it's what our human nature wants us to do is to resolve that anxiety. I received that one too. Uh, that was the one that my family member called me with. And I said, you know what, I've seen that in three other places. So I don't think that came from your boss's friend, but. (laughs) I'd be curious, um, to folks listening to the podcast who also got that text to drop us a tweet about it at IQ2US. Uh, we, we'd just be curious to see how far that thing happened to spread just among our own community. 
and I want to say this about the Intelligence Squared community, is that um, the folks listening to this podcast sort of are on board with what Intelligence Squared uses as its criteria for for seeking truth. Um, we believe in critical thinking. We believe in science. We believe in data. Um, we also think there's information and emotion and passion and commitment, but that the bottom line is that um, we the arguments that tend to win our debates are the arguments that really display meaningful logic, uh, often backed up with data. And the reason I'm saying all of that is that right now, like the two of you, I'm sort of looking at the same sites over and over. In my case, it's Twitter. And I'm very, very concerned personally with the anti-science bent that is informing part of the conversation about what's going on with the virus, how harmful it is, how quickly it's spreading. A lot of this is going into the calculation, the cost-benefit calculation of whether the damage that this thing can do biologically is worth the measures being taken and their economic impact. But what I'm seeing is a kind of, you both mentioned politics, but there's a kind of tribalism almost in whether people are believing the scientists or not, that there's an attitude I'm seeing increasingly. I, I, I tweeted a couple of days ago in the spirit of Intelligence Squared, I tweeted, folks, uh, let's trust the science. And a gentleman tweeted back to me, but the question is which science? Science is so often wrong. And and I, I looked him up and he seems like actually a lovely guy, but he he teaches Bible study and he um, he sort of makes it clear, I, I think, my guess is I would anticipate he's talking about evolution versus creationism. Possibly I'm making that up, I don't really know. But, but the fact is that he has this suspicion about what scientists do does seem to be very much informing part of the tension that's out there right now over the decision over whether the measures the measures being taken to distance ourselves socially are doing more harm than good or vice versa. What about that, Kate? I mean, just the the take on this um, this dispute over whether science is real or not that we're seeing right now. So I'm actually going to shift this a little bit to what, what we're seeing um, because I think there's a third option here um, between like, so, you know, we've got to trust the science and, you know, science is lying to us. What we have right now in this situation is there's a lot of different science. The science is changing. It's dynamic. It's highly uncertain. And when we communicate it to people, they don't always understand that uncertainty. So when it changes, they think we were lying to them the last time when really mm -hmm. it's just that the science was uncertain because science builds on itself. But right now what we're seeing is science and different scientific takes are leveraged and mobilized by people who credential themselves in different ways to create different narratives. And so when, when someone's asking which science, there actually are three or four or five different takes that you can go on to medium, you know, well, some of them got removed, but you can go on to find these things. And, and some of them are um, very, you know, they seem to be based in science. Some of them are based in science. For the average person, even for a scientist in another field, we might not be able to distinguish very well between the ones that are being honest to the science and the ones that are sort of cherry picking the science to make an arg argumentative point. And I, and I think that a lot of people are trying to wade through this space where it's really hard mm -hmm. to, to make sense of the science uh, as it's presented because it's it's presented in ways that are sometimes mobilized for political objectives and sometimes mobilized for people to align with their cognitive biases. And sometimes it's, you know, what is a straight scientific finding, right? Like it's it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard situation for people. Angie, what are your thoughts on that? 
I come at it from having watched the political debates um, over the past decade or so around um, some hot button political issues where science has become almost something of a political football. And the, the prime example would be climate change, where there is a good amount of science to um, uh, confirm that climate change is caused by humans. But one political party um, until... I'd say quite recently, and some people would say not yet, has opposed that. So when you hear someone like President Donald Trump saying that climate change is a hoax, even though it's backed up by science, um, it tends to politicize something that really should be about evidence and hypotheses and proving hypotheses. And what I've seen a lot of, just to wrap it up, is that... um, the political polarization is so bad in this country that people will say, what does my team say? That's what I'm mm-hmm. going to believe. Not what the science says, not what I thought for myself, not evidence that I found, but what does my team, a.k.a. my political party, say? And that's what I'm going to say. Is there a team science, though? <laughs> You would hope there's a team science. And one of the things that I wonder about um, this pandemic is that um, it's, it's, it's coming into people's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So when you start knowing people who get sick or um, are suffering terrible consequences, you can't discount it as something as a something that somebody's making up. Healthcare has always been a very personal issue for most Americans, something that they feel like they understand and grasp because everybody thinks about their own healthcare. So uh, maybe one of the positive outcomes of, of this situation will be a team science, but we'll see. We have to take a break here for just a minute, but we'll be right back. In this special Discourse Disruptor episode of Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm talking with Angie Drovnik-Holon and Kate Starbird, both experts in how the information that we consume is created and distributed. I want to shift the conversation a little bit to the briefings that are coming out of the White House because they have really proven divisive, and they've proven divisive on the thing that we're talking about, which is whose information do you decide to trust? And the president has expressed the kind of confidence, I think, a hunch, in the much-talked-about possible treatment, hydrochloroquine, which, again, social media is filling up with anecdotal uh, stories of actual physicians, supposedly, I can't verify the anecdotes, but but I'll tell you what they say, that actual uh, physicians in actual clinics are treating patients who show unexpected improvement. And and the president, sometime back, um, said, we've got to get this stuff to people. And Tony Fauci, longstanding sort of hero to science, said, whoa, maybe, but we have to figure out if it's really working or not. If that's the thing that's making people better, we have to do tests. And Kate, is is it helpful that this conversation is happening in front of the public? Yeah, so let me put on my crisis informatics hat a little bit and kind of think back to to sort of like um, crisis communications 101. 
And one of the most important thing that we can have as a public um, during a crisis is we, that we can find information that we can trust. And, and ideally, that's from the official response organizations that are going to give us the messages, especially in something like this, where we need to protect ourselves, protect our communities by taking certain kinds of actions. And so it's critical that those, those response organizations can foster that trust. And how they do that is that they remain consistent in their messaging. You know, if the science changes, yes, they have to change what they say, but they should be consistent in that moment in their messaging top to bottom. And then they should rely on the advice and, uh, and understandings of the scientific experts within those organizations. So when political leaders contradict those scientific experts, that it creates more confusion, it creates more uncertainty, it creates more anxiety, and it makes us ripe for the spread of misinformation and rumors. So I think that it's, it's, um, it's a violation of crisis communications 101 to have your political leaders contradicting your, your scientific experts. Angie, what do you think on the whole topic of that dispute over that particular issue, that particular slice of the disagreement here? I think watching these press conferences with President Trump have been really fascinating because um, for the three years that we've been watching him be the president, he's always been this person who shoots from the hip, says what he thinks, doesn't seem to trust experts. And now we're seeing this almost a dance play out between Trump and his scientific advisors because you can almost see them during these press conferences trying to pull them their way toward evidence and factual information and statistics and cool-headedness. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes he seems to go toward them and sometimes he kind of pulls away and puts out his own information. Um, it's very much a piece of the Trump administration that we've observed um, so on that, in that sense, it's not surprising, but in a historical sense, it's very surprising because I cannot remember another president um, being at odds with his own science advisors. It's very peculiar. Uh, so, so Tony Fauci from the NIH, who is definitely considered a hero in tracking down and, and doing the work that led to the treatments for HIV, and also happens to be a graduate of my high school, and we've always been very, very proud of him. In this panoply of people on the president's lectern, the presidential stage, he represents science. He represents everything we're talking about as something that I think the two of you, and certainly I value as a method, as an approach, as a way to think, as a discipline. But because of his perceived disagreement with the president, there are people calling for him to be fired. Now, some of these people are actually people of substance, and it's seen as an act of disloyalty rather than a judgment about what the guy is actually saying. And I guess this is a great big softball question to you, Kate. That's a bad thing, isn't it? <laughs> You're getting out of, out of, outside of my area of expertise, and as a scientist, I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to decline, decline to respond to that one. I mean, I think. Um, yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> That means it goes back to Angie. Um, I I think it's always a problem when we can't trust our elected officials um, to tell the truth. And part of the PolitiFact mission and journalism's mission broadly is to hold the president accountable. But this goes back to that team mentality um, that I was talking about. Um, President Trump has um, 
very much encouraged his supporters. When someone attacks his message, they're attacking him, and his supporters should attack back. And I don't think it's a great thing for deliberative democracy or reason discourse. Um, so it's hard. It, uh, how can anybody see a positive in that? Yeah. We can see in, in our data right now, looking at sort of Twitter discourse around COVID-19, we can see people mobilizing online to try to undermine, discredit, and otherwise attack Dr. Fauci. That's very interesting. As I understand it, right now, you're in the middle of a project. You are going to be doing some major work on on the billions of or the hundreds of millions of tweets that are out there in the atmosphere now. You're going to be analyzing them and telling us about them in several years, I guess. Tell me about that project. Uh yeah, we're, we're collecting, we're always collecting tweets. Um, right now we have multiple collections going uh, just due to the high volume of tweets uh, in this context. We're also trying to grab other kinds of data that's public. Um, we take tweets and look at the broader, look at the links within, the, within them to see the broader ecosystem, to see what the conversation's about. So we're collecting a lot of data. We have a huge team of people at the University of Washington now um, working on this, got students and other faculty members and doing a lot of different kinds of analyses. Right now, I've just been poking at the data a little bit to kind of see, you know, what, what are some of the, <laughs> the rumors that we're seeing, where's some of the misinformation um, the stuff, the stuff attacking uh, Dr. Fauci are is a little bit uh, more recent in the in terms of the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, we are starting to see more organization to it, and we're starting to see it map onto disinformation networks that we're used to seeing active in these spaces. And so, definitely something to watch going forward. Um, certainly, there are people that seem to be politically motivated to undermine him and have him have him removed. Angie and Kate, the um, the social media companies. I'm I'm primarily thinking of Twitter, uh, Facebook, definitely, ha- have been really criticized in the past uh, for the way that they have dealt with der- various kinds of misinformation. But how are they doing on the issue we're talking about right now? Scientifically, provably incorrect misinformation related to the coronavirus. Are they responding to it, Angie? The platform that I'm most familiar with is Facebook. After the 2016 election, Facebook uh, organized a program for fact checkers to participate in where we have special access to the Facebook platform. And if we fact check something and market is found to be false, Facebook will downgrade it. Um, That program was (laughs) scheduled to be increased this year for the elections. And by happy coincidence, uh, now we're having this pandemic. So there's a ton of fact-checking going on on Facebook and um, does seem to be having an effect because one of the interesting aspects of this program is people who post the wrong information can appeal our findings to us. So we get emails when people are like, hey, you said my fact-check was wrong. So um, we we hear from people when we fact-check them, so we know that they're being penalized in some way. Um, The other platforms, I think it's much more of a mixed bag. Twitter has said they're taking steps, but sometimes their penalties don't seem to stick. And uh, YouTube seems to still be a place where um, people can post um, largely what they like. Do you have a take on... Twitter. I would, uh, the reason I'm asking, Kate, before we started the conversation, I was taking one more check and I was looking some keywords to find words like um, COVID, fake, things like that. And I found a few 
deleted tweets from folks who obviously had been kind of putting out the idea that the uh, that everything that the government is not the government in New York State rather is trying to do is based on a on a lie and it's a fraud that the whole COVID thing is a put put big put up job and those tweets are now missing, which gave me the impression that yeah. Twitter is on top of this to some degree. Yeah. So I would say, as a person who's been studying misinformation, disinformation for a while now, I've seen platforms take actions around COVID that haven't been taken before, that they've had to put in stronger policies, more content-specific policies that aren't just based on coordinated behavior that actually are like, if you lie about this particular kind of thing, Mm -hmm. or you spread misinformation about this particular kind of thing, we're going to delete your content. Um, I've seen Twitter actually delete content and maybe even suspend accounts from high audience or high follower influencers, including um, presidents of countries. I think Brazilian president had hmm. his had his uh, tweet removed in the last couple of days. So I have seen actions taken in, in that way. Um, I don't think that they are capable of applying those policies across everything on Twitter. I just don't think that they have the capacity uh-huh. to um, to monitor everything. It's not the misinformation that's just bouncing around on the fringes that's the most dangerous. The, the misinformation becomes dangerous when it hits the influencers. So just targeting the influencers, which is or who they used to give, they used to, to to give the influencers a pass, and then they would target the people on the edges, and not just not just Twitter, but that's a lot of groups. But I think it's really important. It's, it's when these things hit the hit the influencers, whether it's a social media influencer or it's going out through cable news or whatever, that's when it becomes the most dangerous. And so I think it's really important that the platforms are, are sort of applying these to the to the the information that's the misinformation that's coming from the top down, um, as well as the things that might be bouncing around in the corners of the internet. So the mainstream media, I just want to throw in some names. My former organization, ABC News, CNN, um, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. Those organizations have been accused by some supporters, I would say, from supporters of President Trump, of being hysterical, overplaying the issue, overselling it, making it sensational, making it just scream terror and fear, and, and that the way that they're doing it is its own sin, that it's a kind of fear-mongering. So the argument is even that it's fear-mongering meant to drive ratings. I'm curious, Angie, what about your take on that criticism? I think it's hard to accuse um, the mainstream news organizations of fear-mongering when the stakes are so high. Um, this is a very serious pandemic um, virus. Uh, there's a lot they don't know about it. There's a lot they don't know how it spreads. Um, I think the fact that local governments have told so many people to stay home to avoid contracting it goes to the seriousness of the situation. Um, so uh, I don't think the fear-mongering label applies. And in fact, if you look in history, um, the influenza of 1918. The historians who have looked at that found that the press was largely silent out of a desire not to panic people. And they're pretty sure that contributed to a much more severe crisis and outbreak than would have happened otherwise. So I don't Mm. see the, the current criticism as particularly valid right now. Kate, 
Do you have a thought on that? I know that uh, mainstream media is not your thing necessarily, but... Well, it's all connected. I, we don't leave mainstream media out. I mean, they're participating in the social media spaces. The social media content goes out through journalists. That's how it gets amplified and mainstreamed. Um, one of the interesting things I'll say that I've seen in the data recently that I've been looking at is a, around certain uh, online networks that are um, overtly and very uh, pro-Trump, MAGA this, MAGA that, in February, they were actually saying the press was underplaying it. And then when the press finally gets onto it, then then they switch and say they're, they're overplaying it. It was a very interesting kind of shift in, in early on, they're trying to push, you know, prepper prepper kinds of things. And then later they're kind of, they're trying to say, oh, the, the government's over overreacting. I don't know what force shapes or what shapes that kind of movement across there, but it's really interesting that some of the same accounts that were complaining that you know, that we weren't taking it seriously enough in the middle of February are by the first week of March saying that the, the press, that this is a democratic hoax and the press is overplaying it. And so I can only think that those accounts are purely for political conversation and are not people that are actually trying to make decisions for themselves because um, the latter explanation is is frightening. We, we've been talking about the direct assessment of whether or not the virus is going to potentially do the thing that it's supposed to do. But there's a second conversation going on about whether the measures taken to protect us against the virus will do more harm than good. And and there have been serious people raising that question. Um, there's an epidemiologist at Stanford, John Ioannidis, who, who is well-respected. He's done really interesting work work over the years on problems with things like peer review. And he wrote a piece about 10 days ago, 10 days before we recorded this, in which he said, we really don't have the data to know whether the measures we are taking now will, in fact, do more harm than good, not just economically, but also to the health of people. For example, he raises the point, the the possibility that all these kids staying home from school may actually be the vectors for further infection of individuals, particularly if they were around their grandparents, people losing health insurance. The economic damage would have health consequences, is the argument. And that doesn't seem to be making stuff up. That seems to be an argument that nevertheless does fly directly in the face of what the experts, Tanner Fauci and others, are saying, which is right now, we have to stay home. Right now, we have to stay separated. Right now, the price we're paying is justified by the awful thing that's going to happen biologically. And I think that's a far more complicated topic. And I want to know, how do you fit that kind of conversation into the thing that we're talking about? I mean, Kate, you would not call that misinformation, I wouldn't think, but it's certainly contentious. It's challenging viewpoints. It's two different, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a conflict of, of values in some ways, but there's also a lot of uncertainty around both of those, both of the arguments. We don't know what the actions we take are going to do for our health. We have some good feedback that says, you know, that, that the, the lockdowns we're experiencing are, are, are going to save lives, but we don't know the long-term economic impact. We don't know how that translates to other kinds of outcomes that are that are negative in the future. It's the hard thing is it's it, it is it's really there's a lot of uncertainty there, and in in we you can understand why people might have conversations and different viewpoints. I have two uh, elderly parents in an old folks home in Seattle, elder living facility in Seattle. 
I've been acutely scared about them uh, and for them since the the beginning of this month because already we knew that it was that it was spreading in elder living facilities in the in the area. I have a partner who is immune compromised, so this is life or death for the people that I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people can look at their lives and say this is life or death for people that we care about. Okay, we can step back and say, okay, our stock mar- our, our stock portfolios might change and. Now, for the people that are losing their jobs, that's a whole other kind of thing. And, and how are we going to protect them as society? But how can, can we make decisions about protecting them as a society as well as protecting the people that are sick without, without saying, no, no, it's really we've got to have – the economy has to be humming or we can't protect people in society. I just don't yeah. – I, I can tell you where my, my values line up on that. But, of course, it's, it's selfish It's because I, I don't want the people around me to die. Let me take that to Angie for the last word before we wrap up. Angie, is that kind of skepticism? Does it does it get to have a place in this conversation without being viewed as essentially problematic in itself? Well, I think there should be a place in the conversation for it, but I think this is one of the secondary effects of misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. is that when you when people are struggling through these conversations, these discourses, and there's misinformation, it kind of crowds out like reasoned skepticism because people who feel a lot of certainty one way are are like, I can't even indulge that line of thinking because I know there are all these other players out there who are saying that uh, all these wrong things and these things that will create harm. So it's one of the very negative effects of disinformation is that it makes... Um, reasonable, appropriate conversations harder. And maybe that's intended by some of the people who spread disinformation. Exactly. The the worst time, it sounds like. This is all coming home to roost. Indeed. All right. Well, Kate Starberg and Angie Drobnik, hold on. I learned so much from listening to both of you. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your, your now domestic schedule. I guess we're all working from home. But please stay safe and join us again. Thanks so much for being part of Intelligence Squared. All right. Thank you. Thanks. To learn more about Intelligence Squared or to hear the full Discourse Disruptor series, please visit us online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. As we all continue to grapple with the challenges of operating during a pandemic, we are committed to producing thought-provoking and engaging content. This is also a reminder that while you are socially distancing, we have over 175 fact-filled debates in our catalog to spark your intellectual curiosity. Take a listen. This special interview series is brought to you by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates and was recorded on March 31st, 2020. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shay O'Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is senior researcher. Aaron Dalton is the radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much for listening.